Next week will be our uh, – not next week, actually. Two weeks from now will be our last message for the sermon series because next week is Mother's Day, okay? If you don't remember, make sure you remember, okay? Uh, Mother's Day. And so we will have uh, worship service 3.30, okay? All right, so today, uh, our second or last message. If you need a note um, outline, feel free to raise your hand. I think our welcome team can pass them to you. Uh, if you need a pen, ask for one. They can raise your hand again. They will pass it to you. The question I want to share with you today is this. How can you tell if someone is healthy? Like how can you tell if someone is healthy? Is it by the way they look? By how much they weigh? How much food they eat? Like how can we tell if someone is really healthy? The reason why I ask you this question is this. My mom, Mother's Day next week, so I make sure I never remember to do something next week. Uh, she is a very thin woman. She is very slender. She is very healthy. By all accounts, you would look at her. Some of you guys have met her. You would look at her and say, wow, she, she takes care of two of my nieces uh, who are uh, pretty young in age. My sister has two daughters, and they're really young. And so she seems to be a very healthy person. But that is until you find out that every single day she needed to take medicine for her, her cholesterol, for her high blood pressure, and among many other things that's going on inside her body. Like on the outside, it can look very much like she's a healthy person. She eats right. She looks right. She, she has enough energy for the day. But inwardly, there's something that is still not quite right with her, and she needs a medication for it. And one of the reasons why I share this is because as we've been going through the book of 1 John, we've seen how John kind of throw these three tests out for those of us who are believers. Uh, three tests, one of them is obedience. Kind of asking the question of, are you obeying God's commands? Because, because that's a sign that you're a believer. If you obey God's command, that's one sign. Another sign, another test is this. Do you love one another? In fact, John spends so much time talking about as believers, as Christians, we must love one another. That's the second test. And then the third test we saw in 1 John chapter 3 is a conviction test. Like, do you really, really believe in who Jesus is according to the Bible? Or you just believe in the Jesus of the world? Because there are some false teachings about Jesus that perhaps we believe in. And, and the assumption is that if you pass all these tests, you are a legitimate, genuine believer in Jesus Christ. But as John wraps up this letter toward the end in chapter 5, he kind of goes back around and say, kind of at the passage that we will read today, he used the word believe and faith over seven times. He wants us to kind of get back and kind of, the, kind of think back like, do you just do those things on the outside? Are those just outward appearances that you are a believer? Or is there something inside of you that drives those obedience, love, and conviction? Because we can potentially, kind of like my mother, that she can look right, skinny, eats well, and yet actually not be healthy inside. And in the same way, someone can potentially obey at the best ability that they can, and the command of God, they can love people because they're just a nice person, and they can even know a whole lot about the Bible, about Jesus, and yet they are not really a believer. And that's what John is getting at today, that what, we, what ultimately makes someone a believer is not the outward appearance or outward action. What ultimately makes someone a believer is really happens in the inward, inside of us, and namely our faith. 
The only thing that brings salvation to it is not how well we can obey the God's, uh, God's command, how much we love people, and how much we know about Jesus. Ultimately, what makes you and I a believer is our faith, what we believe and hold on to and trust about Jesus Christ. First John chapter 5, verse 1, right from the beginning. Here's what John said. Everyone, if you have your Bible, please turn there. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Very simple words, very simple uh, passage. And I think most of us are familiar with this language. But do not let the brevity of the verse or how familiar you are with these phrases blind you in understanding what John is talking about here. John said, anyone, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. It, genuine, what, you know what genuine faith is? Genuine faith is believing that Jesus is the Christ. Let me clarify for you. The word Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Many times we say Jesus Christ and we think Jesus is the first name, Christ is the last name. No. Christ is actually a title. Christ is actually a, an identity. In fact, it is a very, very loaded identity of who Jesus claimed to be and lived out to be. Because for every believer at the time when John wrote this letter, when they read this verse, the first thing that comes to their mind is that Jesus is the Christ. They need to believe that Jesus is Christ. The first word they're thinking of is this. Christ means Messiah. The word Christ is a Greek word, but it is a translation of a Hebrew word named Messiah. Messiah, which literally means the anointed person. And if you read through the Old Testament, which is two-thirds of the Bible, the Messiah is someone that they look forward to, to rescue them. The Messiah is the, peop- is the person that the, the Old Testament believer, uh, fear, uh, fears, uh, God fears, and, and people who believe in God look forward to one day will show up into this world and rescue them from the things of this world. There are hundreds of promises and prophecy made about this would-be Messiah. And what John is saying is this. If you have real faith in Jesus, what you need to believe is that he is that Messiah. Now, you may be thinking, well, what, what difference does it make? You're like, I have faith in Jesus. See, most, for most of us, having faith in Jesus is not really the hard thing. Having the faith in Jesus is sometimes the easy thing because we're believing in the wrong Jesus. See, many times we have faith in Jesus, but Jesus is not, that Jesus is not the same as the Bible, the, uh, what the Bible described and showed us. See, everyone has faith. Faith, we, as, Christ, as Christians or religion, we don't have the corner of the word faith. Everyone has faith. A non-believer has faith. They just name it something different. They call it the stock market. They call it the retirement plan. They call it an education. They call it a career. Faith is anything that you put your trust in, believing that it will give you security and comfort. That it will ultimately provide for you what you want, what it want to be. See, everyone has faith, but my question for us is this, and the same question John is bringing up to all of us is this, do you have faith that Jesus is the Christ? Jesus is the Messiah. So the question then is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? How do I know what the, who the Messiah is? See, many, many, many people believe in Jesus 
but not everyone believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Many people believe Jesus is like a genie in the bottle. If I just rub it a few times, he would do whatever I want. Jesus, some people believe that Jesus is, is a life coach that make my life better. Some people even believe Jesus can make their life physically better. But all of those things, there may be some element of it may be true. But ultimately, what we need to believe is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Here's what it means. You're taking notes here. The first thing it means for Jesus to be a Messiah. Can you go to the next slide, please? The Messiah, he is a, a prophet. He is the ultimate prophet. I'll give you all the answers right now. Jesus, in order for Jesus to be a Messiah, he is the prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. You know what a prophet does in the Old Testament? They are the mouthpiece of God. They are like this microphone right here. They speak for God. This microphone does not speak on its own. I need to speak in order for it to transmit wavelength to make it louder for you. A prophet does the exact same thing. He speaks for God. Whatever the prophet speaks, he speaks for God. And the ultimate message that the prophet makes is not about the prophet himself, but it is about a plan of forgiveness for all mankind. That's what Jesus did when he was on earth in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Early on when he first came on earth, when his ministry first started, Jesus pronounced this message of God that there will be forgiveness of sin to all people. Read from Mark, John, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. What is that good news? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is the Messiah because he is the mouthpiece who announced that plan verbally and in life. He came on earth, from heaven to earth, all to tell you and I and the people at the time that there is a plan for your sin and my sin. And that, re that requires us to put our faith in him for forgiveness. But not only is he a prophet, he is also the priest. He doesn't just tell you that there is a plan. He became the plan as a Messiah. See, there were many, many uh, prophets before Jesus, but they're all telling people about Jesus. Jesus not only was the prophet, he was the priest in the Old Testament time. Every single year, a priest will bring in this perfect blameless, uh, perfect lamb to be sacrificed. Why? Because the sacrifice of that lamb will represent the washing away of your sin and my sin. But they got to do it every single year. Because, uh, because after they, they, they did that ceremony, the ritual of sacrificing a lamb to blood, wash away our sin, the next year you and I do the same exact thing. We sin again. And what happens during the Day of Atonement, the, the, the priest will come again and sacrifice the lamb once again. Churches back then was not, well, it's not called church, it's tabernacle or temple, does not smell very good because it was a very bloody place. Imagine every Sunday you come here, I have to kill a lamb and there's blood everywhere. And that represents the forgiveness of sin. But when Jesus came, because he was the Messiah, he did not just come to offer up that physical animal lamb. He offered his own life. Look at Hebrews 9 11. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time. He, he's one and done. -er. He did it once. 
And that's enough. Why is it enough? Because it is not doing it by the blood of a goat or calf that is a physical animal. He did it by his own blood, having obtained eternal forever redemption. Because Jesus was the Messiah, he is God himself and came on earth as a human being. As the priest who offered not just an animal, he offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice. That's what made him to be the Messiah. And lastly, is this. The Messiah is also not only prophet, priest, he is also the king of his people. So as king, Jesus rules in such a way that not, not to allow sin to ring over your life and my life. See, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king for your life and my life. He's not the same king that we think of. He's not the dictator. He's not the one who wants to take advantage of you. See, in Old Testament time, a king was supposed to be, key were supposed to, but they never turned out that way. They were supposed to provide peace. A good king have the people's best interests in mind. The Messiah has the best interests of his people in mind as well. That's why Jesus wanted to be your king and my king. But not just to rule over you, to make you a puppet of his, of his kingdom. He wants to rule over you so that you can rule over the sin that so corrupted your life and my life. And how did he do that? He sacrificed his life. Romans 6, 8 to 11. It says this, Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. See, when the reason why Jesus had to die on the cross and be raised again, as we celebrate a couple of weeks ago at Easter, is because when Jesus raised again, he is not being ruled over by death anymore. He's not being ruled over by sin anymore. That's what makes him king of all. And now the verse said, if you have your faith in that king, that Messiah, you can rule over your sin as well. You don't only die with him, but you also live with him. You remember when we did uh, baptism a couple weeks ago, Pastor Sean shared a passage from Romans chapter 6 as well. When we dip the person into the water, that represents bearing that person with Jesus. But when they raise again, we don't keep them underneath the water and let them drown. We raise them up. It's because there's new, it represents a new life that they have in Jesus. So when Jesus becomes the Messiah for us, he wants to be king. He is already king over sin. And now he wants you to, to have the same victory over sin. And that's what made God, Jesus, the Messiah. He is both the priest, the prophet, and the king. But that demands a response from you and I. If he is really the prophet, he has a message to deliver to you. What is your response to that message of salvation? And the proper response is one of repentance. Because he is saying the message, the prophet is announcing to you and I that you have a sin problem. You have a condition that you cannot erase on your own. And in order for you to be rescued from that condition, you need to repent and say, turn around from sin and say, I can't deal with sin anymore. I need to put faith in this Messiah, this prophet. But that re- requires a repentance. But as, as, a, as a priest, that also calls a, re- a response of believing in him. Do you believe that what he had done on the cross is enough for your sin? That his death is actually, as what John wrote in First uh, John chapter 2 and chapter 3, that is the atoning sacrifice for you. Is his sacrifice enough? Or are you still trying to work out your own sin and become the perfect person? Say, God, see how good I have become? I worked through all those, all those bad habits, that bad thoughts I have. See, God, now you can accept me and receive me. 
But when Jesus is the Messiah for us, he's the priest for us. He said, no, you cannot. I already paid for your sin. That requires a response of belief. Here's the last one too. As king, he requires us to follow him. A king is not a king if there's no follower for him. A king is not a king if he has no subject to follow him. This is why being a Christian is not, having faith in Jesus is not a one-time decision, but a day-to-day decision to put my faith and trust in him. We need to follow him. Jesus said it best in Luke chapter 9. He says this, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Deny yourself daily, every single day. Say no to yourself. Say no to your desire. So say no to, to, to your fleshly want. And when you do that every single day, that is practicing your faith. That is following him. It is not a one-time thing. Uh, I hope you remember a couple of weeks ago when I preached on, on, on uh, salvation. We talked about in First John that salvation is, a, is not just a moment in time. It's not a decision to happen, but it continues to happen. It starts with a decision. It's a, it's a dot, but it is also an arrow. That every day I'm remaining trusting in Jesus. And that's what genuine faith is. Then the question is, why should we have genuine faith? And John answered in the, in the following verses. You go back to 1 John chapter 5. Why, why is genuine faith in Jesus as the Christ so important? Because it does a couple of things for us. It changes everything for us in our lives. First thing it changes us is this. That genuine faith saves you. Genuine faith saves you, gives you new life. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been what? Let's read that together. Everyone who has believed that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You remember the story of Zacchaeus? Jesus said, you need to be born again. By the way, that's where the term born again Christian came from. You know what Zacchaeus' answer was? Jesus, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb and come back out again? Uh, Nicodemus, thank you. Nicodemus. The, the reality, you cannot crawl back to your mother's womb. What Jesus is getting at is, when you believe that Jesus is the Messiah who offers a plan of salvation for you, died for you, and called you to follow, when you do that, now you have a new life. Not a better life. I like to put it this way. God doesn't want a, version, uh, a Ben 2.0 version. Because the Ben 1.0 version still have sin. A 2.0 version is just a little bit less sin. What God wants for you and I is not that you have less sin, but you have no sin. And the only way to do that is to be born again, to be a new person. And that's why genuine faith is so important. It provides salvation for us. But only does it provide salvation. It also does this. Genuine faith also works. It causes us to work. It helps you to work. Let's read in verse 2 to 4. This is how we know that we love God's children. When you have genuine faith, we've talked time and time again in this series, our faith calls us to love one another. When we love God and obey His commands, our faith calls us to obey God. Verse 3, and for this is what love for God is to keep His commands, and His commands are not a burden. Why is commands not, obedience to commands not a burden? 
It is not a burden because all of a sudden you accepted this Messiah as your king. You really believe and have trust that he has the best plan for your life. Why would my kids not see obeying me as a burden? Because they know that I love them. I don't want the best for them. I would never tell them to drink something that's poisonous. Because they know I love them. And they believe that I actually love them. And the same is true with God. When we have genuine faith in Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ for us, we understand, we believe that he has the best plan for us. That's why he called you not to do all these sinful acts because he knew what consequences it will bring to your life. When we trust God, it calls us to do good works. And in verse 4, it says this, because everyone who has been born of God, man, conquers the world. Now, I don't see any president, queen, king, Maybe some of you do have an island that own the island. I don't know. But as far as I can tell, none of you has a kingdom. None of you will be considered to be a conqueror. But look at what John said. If you have faith, he says that everyone who has been born of God through genuine faith in Jesus conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. How do we conquer the world? We conquer the world by our faith. First John chapter 2 talks about the world so everything in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride in one's possession is not from the father but is from the world apostle john tells us what's the ways of the world man you want a lot of things you're self-centered you rely on things you rely on people you start looking for things you start looking for people to fulfill you that is the grasp that the world has on you and i without jesus and he said, if you, the only way to fight against that is not to be better at it, is not to be more disciplined at it, is not to, to, to hold, have people only hold you accountable. The only way for you to loosen that grip that the world has on you is by faith, is to believe that you have enough from God. So you and I would never love other people if we never felt loved by God, because that would be silly. Why would I want to love you when I'm trying to get love from other people? But you see, when you have faith in Jesus, when you really believe that he has, he has his, he poured his love for you by dying on the cross and raised from the dead, he is now fulfilling his love, pour his love in your life. You're satisfied with that. Then all of a sudden you can love other people. You're not looking for other people to meet your love, but you are pouring out your love to other people. That's how faith works and faith provides us victory against the world. And if you want a life that is not entangled by sin, that is not entangled by the ways of the world, and I think honestly all of us know as pleasing and as tempting the ways of the world is, we all know at the end it never fulfills its promise. And if you don't want that grasp on you anymore, we need to have faith in Jesus. Because that's the only way for us to, to have victory over it. And here's the last thing. Genuine faith perseveres. It perseveres. It continues on. It builds on. It holds us, continues to, allows us, empower us to have faith in Jesus day after day after day. I want to point your, direction, uh, point your attention to First John chapter 5, verse 1 again. It says, everyone who believes... This is really important. It doesn't say everyone who believed 
in the past. He says everyone who believes, every time in the New Testament, if you see a present tense, a little English lesson here. Every time you see present in the New Testament, it, it, is, it, it has the connotation of doing it habitually, continuously, repetitively. Notice what it does not say. Everyone who believed one time in the past is born of God. Because that's not how faith works. That's how we like to think of faith. Wrongly. That it is just a one-time decision. I raised my hand, prayed a prayer, and now I'm good with Jesus until he comes back. But notice what John said. He said, everyone who believes today that Jesus is their Lord. We believe again tomorrow. And what real faith, genuine faith does is, when you make that decision at that moment in time, which is real, it enables you to make that decision tomorrow. Man, it makes sense in my life. I, I all of a sudden feel convicted that I need to make Jesus as my Lord and Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And now tomorrow, I, I continue. It enables me to, to believe that he's still the king of my life. I want to continue to believe in the next day and the next day and the next day. And that's what real faith does. And some of us, when, when we are thinking of our own relationship with God, we're like, am I saved or not? Here's how you can tell you're saved or not. If you continue to believe in him or not. I've used this analogy with you in the chair. How do you know you trust in this chair that you're sitting on? You didn't get up for the last hour you've been sitting here. Most of you, if not all of you, believe that chair is not going to break. Because you continue to put all of your weight on it. And that's exactly what genuine faith does. is continue to help you to believe and to believe and to trust and to trust in Jesus. Genuine faith is important because it changes the rest of our lives. It changes our lives in the past of our sin. It changes our lives today that we can live victorious life. It changes our future that one day we'll be in heaven. There is a future for us. Because of time, I won't go through in detail the rest of the passage. But what I do want to touch on is this. Because if Jesus is such a big deal, then how do I know that he's the real deal? Like if Jesus is so such... Faith in Jesus is such a big deal. How do I know he's real? And John anticipated that question because he continued in that passage in verse 5 to 13 that, that Kevin read for us earlier that he gave us three witnesses that Jesus is real. Because none of us lived in those in, the, in 2,000 years ago and saw Jesus, touched Jesus, smelled Jesus. How do we know Jesus is real? John gave us three witnesses. He called three witnesses to testify that Jesus is real. Let me quickly give it to you. Here's the first one. The first one, it says, says this in 1 John 5, 5 to 8. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ. He's the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. Here's the first two that you, your first two evidence or witness that Jesus is real is that he came by water. But what does it mean by water and blood? He was baptized. Water represents the baptism of Jesus. The blood represents the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus. You're like, what's the big deal? How does that prove anything? It's a big deal is because Jesus, as a human, as, a, as fully God, did not have to be baptized. One of the reasons why we need to be baptized is because it represents what God has done in your life and my life. He put, uh, we die with him, we raise with him. That's what it represents. Jesus didn't sin, so he didn't have to die. 
He didn't have to be baptized. But Jesus did it even as fully God did it because he's also fully human being when he was on earth. He set the examples for you and I as human beings that we need to be baptized. Represent we need to have faith in Jesus. That he died, we die with him and we raise with him. But not only water, but also blood. He needed to die. It was not a pre- pretend death. Jesus really had to die. The disciples, remember, after Jesus was buried, when the, when the soldiers could not, when the, when the stone was rolled away, uh, the night before he was uh, um, resurrected, remember what the soldiers and the Pharisees were thinking? Man, let's put extra guards in the stone. Because just in case his disciples stole his body and pretended that Jesus was resurrected, then they will have the, they will have the full story of what they claim to, to believe in. Even they were worried that Jesus was real. See, Jesus had to die because he's fully human being, as fully human being that he can die for you and I. But not only water and blood, which is objective, most history books would not deny that Jesus exists. They just deny that Jesus is God. And here's the third testimony. It is a subjective one. He says this, And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the spirit, the water, and the blood. The third testimony is a subjective one. It's called the spirit of God. And quite honestly, for many of us, that is the one testimony that we care around about the least. For most churches, we talk a lot about God the Father. We talk about God, Jesus Christ, the Son of Jesus Christ. But rarely do we realize that the spirit of God in us is so important. Think about for those of us who are believers. Why did you believe in Jesus? For most of us, it was not because of a logical argument someone made to you showing you a picture of Jesus being and there's empty tomb. And that's why you believed. For many of us, the reason why we believe is somehow, somewhere, it makes sense. And when you share that with somebody else, they're like, it doesn't make sense for me. But you're like, no, 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 it makes total sense to me. See, the Spirit of God works in your heart and my heart and help us understand what Jesus has done for us. I recently talked to someone about getting married. And one of the most popular questions people ask when they're dating or they're trying to get married is this. How do you know that he or she is the one? Now, I can give you a list of the things why Hannah was the one for me to get married to. What, how great she was, how awesome she is, how everything she is that is that I'm not. But at the end of the day, for those of us who are married, we know that when we make that decision, it is not because of this list of pros and cons. It is not because I have more pros and less cons, so now let's marry this girl. There is something inside of us that say, I'm willing to sacrifice and commit my life to this woman. There is a conviction in my heart that is inexcusable, that is unexplainable. Guess what? That is the Spirit of God also convicts us when we believe in Jesus. You can explain it all you want, but at the end of the day, we know that the Spirit of God affirms our our faith and give us faith to believe, which is why John says at the end, we'll wrap up here, verse 9, that if we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater. John knew that people were like, well, how do I know that God's testimony is real? John said, 
If you are willing to accept human testimony, how can you not accept God's testimony? Let's be honest. We accept human testimony very readily. Websites like Yelp, Review on Amazon, CNET, anything that you want to buy, what do you do first? You don't go and try it out yourself. You go look up what? A review. Did you know that over 2,000 people are wrongly convicted for the last 20 years? Because of what? Human testimonies. We put people's lives at stake because of human testimony. And yet John said, if you're willing to do that, how can you not put God's testimony on a higher place, on a, of, of, of more value? And here's the good news for us. As believers, if you are convicted by the Spirit of God that Jesus is real, even when your surrounding and your life doesn't make any sense, you can always hold on to that conviction that the Spirit testified to you that Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 5, 11 to 13. The shortest. Can you go to the next slide, please? The shortest. Next one. The shortest, perhaps the most succinct gospel presentation in all of Scripture. It says this. This is the testimony. This is what God testified to us through Jesus Christ himself and the Spirit of God. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. And the one who does not have the son of God does not have life. Why did John write all of this? Verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. So that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. We start off this series talking about why we go through First John. Because John wants us to know. John want you to know. It would be silly for us to put faith in Jesus. Like, I don't know. I'll find out. Then why bother putting faith? Put faith in somebody else. God wants us to know. Why does God use the Spirit of God to convict us, to, to testify to us? Because he wants you and I to know. Because there will be a day here on earth that we will have doubts. There will be a day on earth that we wonder if God is real. But here is the promise that John gives to us. If we have the Son of God, we have eternal life with him. But the opposite is also true. When you don't have the Son of God, you do not have eternal life. So for those of us who are believers, I want to encourage you. Do not let your circumstances in life dictate how you feel about God. But trust in the promise. If you have the Son of God... You have eternal life starting the moment you believe in Jesus. But for those of us who are not believers who do that, I want to encourage you. Eternal life does not come through good works. does not come through attendance at church. It does not come through giving a whole lot of money to charity. It comes only and only through Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There's only three conclusions if you think of God and think of Jesus Christ. Either he's a lunatic, he's crazy. Or he's a liar, or he's Lord. Either he's just so crazy that he, he doesn't even know that he's not God, he just keeps talking about that he's God. Or he's a liar that he knows he's not God, but he just pretend to be God. Or the third option, if he's really God, you cannot get around reading his teaching to make him as Lord. Because that's what he calls you to be, 
to follow him because he calls you, he he dies for you so that you will own his life to him and for good good reason and for good future let's pray together heavenly father we want to thank you for your son jesus by sending him down from heaven to earth to glorify yourself your plan of salvation that salvation certainly we're a beneficiary of that plan but more so god it is for your own glory God, I just want to pray for anyone here among us that struggles in having faith in you. That they have made the decision to uh, receive, believe you as their as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Lord and Savior. And yet, whatever reason right now, there are things that are holding them back. Whatever things that are distracting their focus on you. God, I pray that you give them faith. Spirit of God, would you remind them once again of what you have done on the cross for them. God, I want to pray for those of us who are not believers here. God, help them to see. Help them to know. Help them to investigate, to explore this great news that you have for us. Help them to know and to realize that we cannot do it on our own, but we need a God yourself to help us. So God, bless us. Lord, help us to respond to you with this passage. Help us to know that we have the Son of God or we don't have the Son of God. And help us to see the reality of the consequences of having you or not having you. God, help us not to just be wavering. Help us not to just stand in the gray area, but help us to commit our lives to you. So God, we pray all these in your son's name. Amen.